We're starting the life of Joseph this week, and it is a section of Genesis that covers about 14 chapters, 37 to 50, and it is arguably some of the most riveting and uh, dramatic storytelling in the Bible. It's right up there with you know, Daniel and, and Babylon and the saga of, uh, of King David in First uh, and Second Samuel. Major book series have been written on, written on the life of Joseph. Countless sermons have been uh, preached. And of course, it is the subject of one of the most beloved uh, Broadway musicals, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's a pretty good musical. So this should be pretty exciting stuff for us to take a look at. Uh, if it doesn't, you know, if this doesn't keep your attention, I don't know what, what will. I mean, think about it. This is, this is history. In these pages, we'll dig into real people's actual lives and, and struggles. This isn't, you know, made-up drama. You couldn't make this stuff up. And more, as we interact with these stories, God is going to be teaching us about himself and his ways. And about us. He's going he's to shape and change our lives. Because these words about Joseph's lives, these kind of lived words, are actually God's living word. So as we interact with these dramatic stories, he is, he's working in us. He's transforming us, saving us. Now there are two simple reading rules that I want us to keep in mind. We're switching over here, switching over to some historical narrative there's two simple reading rules that I want us to keep in mind over the next two weeks that I think will, next few weeks, that I think will help us. The first is freshness. Let's approach these texts afresh. I know you probably know most of these stories, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. Try to get the Sunday school kind of lessons or the flannel graph images maybe out of your head. Try to get the Andrew Lloyd Webber songs out of your mind. And just approach these texts with fresh eyes, opening, asking God to open up your eyes and open up your, your heart. If we would all do that, I think it will really help us. Number two, let's remember the big picture. These stories are part of a much bigger narrative that runs from the beginning and, and end of the Bible. This, this book is the context of these Stories. We can't just read these stories and take them straight to us as if this story isn't part of the much larger story that, uh, that informs its meaning. We must read it in the whole Bible, each story, accordingly. Now, I think verse 1 of our text reminds us of this, of this second principle. Look at it. Let's read it. It says this, Jacob lived... In the land of his father's so, of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan, these are the generations of Jacob. That is a, that is a reader's cue. It's telling us that this is part of a much bigger picture. We're about to zoom into Joseph's life, but we see that it's part of the generations of Jacob. This phrase, "these are the generations of," is a phrase that comes up nine times in the Genesis account, each time introducing a new epic. Of, of, of the narrative. You see, although the next 14 chapters, like I said, are zoomed in on Joseph's life, we're not to forget they're part of this big saga uh, from, of, of generations upon generations moving back through the patriarchal narratives from Jacob 
back to Isaac, back to Abraham, to whom God promised he would make his lineage a great nation and he would be their God and he would bless them and he would rule over them. The reader is to remember that Joseph's life is part of a bigger plan of God to raise up his people, a plan that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. In fact, in the promises given to Abraham many, many years earlier, the outworking of Joseph's, Joseph's life is actually, it's actually prophesied, it's actually predicted. In uh, Genesis uh, 15, verse uh, 30, verse 12, actually, 13 says this, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with a great possession. He's talking about the outworking of what Joseph's life and their slavery in Egypt. We have to see it in this big picture. It's very important. It will keep us on track. It will keep us from getting sidetracked into strange moralizing and, and, and feel-good inspirationalism from these stories, that, you know, these kind of lessons that can go anywhere. And uh, this principle is helpful right in this very first story, remembering the big picture. Let's read this section of it, chapter two, uh, chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zelpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of, the other, of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the fields, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you to, indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for the dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Okay. At this point in the story, what, are, what is it about? What do we do with this? What would be the teaching? Is it, a, is it a moral fable about the dangers of favoritism? Parents, you need to be careful not to show favorites. It can lead to strife and division with your children. Well, that's something that's there. It's something that's true. Or maybe it's a cautionary tale about being an arrogant little, you know, brother kind of brat tattletale. 
That's how Joseph is portrayed in some of the musicals and the storytelling that goes on. Maybe, maybe that's right. You can kind of see it. Or maybe it's been inspirational lesson. Maybe this sermon should have been titled, Never Give Up on Your Dreams. Joseph didn't give up on his dreams, and neither should you. Others may laugh at your dreams. Even your own family and your parents may mock your dreams, but if God gave you those dreams, don't give up on those dreams. Even if you end up in a pit, he will raise you up, and he'll make your dreams come true. That'd preach, right? Well, no, that's, there's no amen to that. You can only preach those kind of things from this text you ripped it out of its context. Now, the point thus far that we can say that I think is very clear and true is just this. Joseph will rule God's people. God is raising up his ruler. That's point one. That's what's being said here. The main, it's, it's the main idea that we're not to miss. In fact, we see his rulership emphasized in the very first statement about Joseph. Verse 2, look at Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. We see the rulership emphasized there. You see, the Hebrew here can be read, and I think it should be read, that Joseph was pastoring or shepherding his brothers. There's no with. It's not Joseph was shepherding with his brothers. Joseph was shepherding his brothers. At 17, he was tasked with overseeing his older brothers. This is why, this is why he's reporting on them in, in, in verse 3. That's his job. This is why later his father sends him out to go find them and to check on them to see if they're well. Because that's his job. He's been set over them. It's kind of odd to think that the younger brother would be overseeing the older brothers, but it's supposed to be odd. We're supposed to notice it. And note that, the, that it, you know, it says that he gives this bad report about them. It's not because he's telling exaggerated fibs as a bratty little tattletale. Do you know why he tells bad reports about his brothers? Because his brothers are bad. They're really bad. If you've been reading through the account in Genesis, you know. Reuben had a relationship with his father's concubine. You know the whole group of them basically murdered a whole city of Hivite men and then kidnapped their women and children. They are bad, murderous, perverse men. Among whom Joseph clearly stands in contrast as a wholesome, honorable, truth speaker. Not a tattletale, a truth speaker who can be trusted. This is reinforced, I think, in verse 3 when it says that Jacob loved him because he was the son of his old age. Commentaries kind of get into that because technically Benjamin was the son of his old age. So how is it that they have Joseph here? And they say, well, this phrase actually can be understood to mean like son of old age, like mature beyond his years. Joseph was a son of old age. It's a reference to Joseph's wisdom beyond his years. Jacob realizes that he has a unique, special son with wisdom beyond his age and a righteousness of character unlike his brothers. He stands out 
kind of like Samuel does amongst Eli and all the corrupt priests and how David does among his brothers. He stands out. Joseph is the righteous, beloved son who's being set apart by his father to oversee, to rule his brothers. And on top of uh, of this that kind of puts the cherry on top, his father rewards him with this uh, special coat. Uh, the looks of the coat is actually quite debated. We know it as the coat of many colors. The Hebrew can mean that it was a coat that actually went all the way to his wrists and all the way down to his ankles, that it was just this big kind of coat. But what's, impress- what's, what's important is the only other reference to such a coat is in 2 Samuel 13, 18, where it's a coat of a princess. See, it's a coat of, of royal illusions. So before we even get to the dreams in this text, Joseph is being singled out as the beloved son, righteous one, future ruler. And the dreams just confirm it. Dream number one. He and his brothers are working in the fields, and his sheaf stands up tall and his brother's sheaves bow down to his sheaf. The implication is obvious. His brothers even say, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you going to rule over us? And as if to answer their question, he tells them about his second dream. (laughs) In this dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, right? The 11 brothers, you know, they're all going to be the 12 tribes, including them of Israel. The, The sun and the moon as the mom and dad, representing the whole family. Everybody is bowing down to him. It's quite a statement. And even dad thinks it's a bit much. Look at verse 10 again. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, your mother and your brothers, indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the same in mind. Jacob is skeptical, but he has this suspicion that there might be something about what Joseph is saying. He holds it in his mind. But for the reader, it's absolutely clear what's being said, isn't it? This isn't just wishful thinking by Joseph. This is God. This is divine orchestration. That's what these dreams infer. Three times so far in the book of Genesis, God has made a divine announcement of his will through, through dreams. In 20, verse 3, with Abimelech. In 28, verse 12, with Jacob. In 31, verse 24, with Laban. So the reader knows what this means. And and the doubling of the dream, by the way, seals it. Flip over to chapter 41, just a page or two over there. This is when Joseph later is talking to Pharaoh about his double dreams. So, chapter 41, verse 32 This is what Joseph says. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. This is what Hebrews thought about a double dream, that it was confirmation of its divinity. You see, the reader, especially a Hebrew reader, knows that Joseph will be God's ruler of his people, God's shepherd, beloved son will rule. 
Everything from here on out in Joseph's life is to be read with this prophetic knowledge in mind. We're being told that as the readers right up front. And by the way, this fits the big picture narrative where we got to keep it, right? In the Garden of Eden, you had God's people in God's place under his rule. Adam and Eve in his place under his rule, a special place that was lost at the fall. It was re-promised to Abraham, you'll be my people, I'll bring you to my special place of land and I will rule over your people. Now we see that beginning to be worked out in Joseph's rule and the people as well as they're going into Egypt to become a great people. It'll become a monarchy, it will be fulfilled in Jesus. We see the story and the fits in the whole story. And the applications are many for us this side of the cross if we start to think about it, but we won't yet. We'll just jump into point two. Point two is this. God's ruler is rejected, even by his people. God is establishing his ruler, and his man Joseph, God's ruler, is rejected. And their rejection couldn't be any clearer. Note the tripling of them hating, his brothers hating him. Verse four, But when his father saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when they told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to rule over us? Are you indeed to to reign over us? So they hated him even more. They hate the would-be ruler, so they reject him. And verses 12 to 36 present a very dark, gruesome picture of their rejection. Joseph comes to oversee them, as he's supposed to do, to help them, having been sent by the Father. But they see him coming. We'll pick it up at verse 18. They saw him from afar, his brothers. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say to that, that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him of their hands to restore him to his father. So Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. This isn't a a light rejection, right? This isn't, you know, Joseph shows up and they're like, hey, we don't like you. you. You sit over, you don't eat with us. You can't sit at the cool table anymore. This is serious. They want him dead. It's outright murderous hate. They will destroy him. And if it wasn't for Reuben's intervention, they would have. Although his intervening, I would say, might be more about saving his own skin because he, being the eldest brother, would be the one that would bear the brunt of the blame for the accidental death of the favorite son. You kind of pick this up in verse 30 when he goes back and he finds that Joseph isn't in the pit. He says, the boy is gone, and where shall I go? He knows he's in trouble. So instead, 
They stripped Joseph of his royal robe and cast him into a pit. And then the cruelest line, verse 25, and they sat down to eat. Imagine that scene. Imagine Joseph. You know that they didn't, you know, kind of lightly throw him in. This was a beat down, right? And they stripped him naked and they chucked him in a pit that you can't get up. That's a deep pit. That's got to hurt. And he can hear them up there feasting and laughing. Maybe he's crying out for his life. And they're sitting there chowing away. And that's when they get the idea. As they see the Egyptian caravan approaching, hey, we can make some money off this. Let's sell him into slavery. And we'll never have to see him again. It's perfect. We get rid of him forever. We make a little profit. And his blood is not really on our hands. A little fib to dad about an animal attack with some technicolor theatrics and bloody clothes offered as evidence it's perfect never mind Joseph's suffering never mind their father's broken heart and overwhelming grief so they do it and they think they're done they're done he's gone they've rejected Joseph God's ruler right out of their lives rule over us (laughs) Keep dreaming. But the question is, why? Why such a vitriol reaction? I mean, if he's really just a stupid boy having silly dreams like they claim, then someday they'll all just have a good laugh about this, right? They'll be like, remember, Joseph, when you had those dumb dreams, those stupid dreams, and Dad gave you that ridiculous coat? Oh, that was funny. Those are good times. Now you're just working in the fields with the rest of us. No, they react this way because deep inside they know the truth. Notice how in verse 11 it says, after Joseph pro- proclaims his dreams about ruling, it says, and they were jealous. They have the same inkling as their father. that it's all true. And the reality of Joseph's presence as the beloved son, God's ruler, shepherd, it's just too much. They can't stand it. I think they can't stand it for two reasons. First of all, he exposes them. He exposes their sinfulness and evil. Not just in that he reports about it to his father, but also because his good character amplifies their shame, exposes their badness just by being who he is. There's a reason that he's the beloved son. He does act in righteousness. He is truly wise. He is authentic and honest. And they are not. And they know it. And the contrast is obvious. Their father can see it. And he favors and loves Joseph, and they hate him. He exposes, in his very essence, their evil and shame, and they can't stand it. They will destroy him for it. It reminds me of John chapter 3, verse 19. Just after John 3, 16, right? 
where we're told how God in his love sends his son, his beloved son, his ultimate shepherd, shepherd, ruler, Jesus, into the world to bring salvation and life to all who would believe. This is what it says, 3, chapter 19. Sorry, I'm in Mark. That will throw me off every time. Uh, 3. Chapter 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see, the world, us, all of us, are a lot like Joseph's brothers. We're not good. We're sinful people, flawed and broken in our own evil. But we don't want to face it. We hate exposure. It's too painful. It's too real. It's too shameful. So we hate the light. We reject the beloved son. But you know, even more significant, Joseph's presence confronts their autonomy. It doesn't just expose their evil. It confronts their their sense of autonomy, their sense of self-rule. If he is God's ruler to whom they will bow, well, then they're not really in charge. They're not even really in charge of themselves. Not that they're really doing a good job of that. Their lives are a mess, enslaved to their lusts and their hatreds, entangled in sin. But they like to think they are. So they reject him, verse 8, will you rule over us? And they hate him even more. Here he is, a good brother, and they know it. Wise and truthful, and they know it. And as readers, we know his promised rulership is about their salvation. God working to save his people, and they should at least sense it. The, The divine dreams are a bit of a clue. But he exposes their evil, he confronts their autonomy, so all they want to do is get rid of him. And they think they have. Again, it reminds me of Jesus. You know, in Mark's gospel, this beautiful biography of Jesus' life that's 16 chapters long, do you know in what chapter the authorities decide to kill Jesus? just at the end of chapter 2, just into chapter 3. Jesus is just days into his ministry, doing nothing but wonderful things, healing the sick, casting out demons. He's healed a man of leprosy. He's healed a paralytic. He's restored a man's withered arm, and he's been proclaiming salvation to the world. And this is their conclusion, chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, complete opposite parties, but both in power against him on how to destroy him. That's what they decided. They had to get rid of him. This is the response. He threatens their rule. He must die. That's what takes God's beloved son, shepherd, to the cross. 
It's still why people reject him. If you're rejecting him today, it's because, is it because he's offering you salvation? No, it's because he's threatening your autonomy. Now, as this story in Genesis 37 comes to an end, things don't look good at ground level, do they? Joseph's been stripped of his royal robe. He's been sold into slavery. And his father is in deep, deep mourning. Look at verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Seems pretty sad, pretty hopeless at ground level. But there's one more verse, isn't there? Verse 36. Meanwhile, again, this is a reader's cue, isn't it? Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The narrator, he wants us to know something. He wants us to know what? The story's not over. It's not over yet. That's point three, which don't worry, won't be too long. One, point one, Joseph is God's ruler. Point two, God's people reject his ruler. And things look bad. Point three, the story is not over. No matter how things look at ground level, it's not over. Joseph is God's chosen ruler, and he will reign, and all will bow. Joseph's character portrayal here demonstrates it. He's the shepherd, overseer, beloved son, marked by a royal robe. His double dream confirms it. His father keeps it in his mind like Mary treasured and pondered those truths in her heart that the shepherds came and told her about her son. And the end of the story projects it as it casts our eyes forward to Egypt. So as readers, we know. We know without a doubt the end of the story. God's man, his beloved son, will rule. We're supposed to read all the next pages with all the ups and downs of Joseph's life, with that certain reality in mind. And this is the big application. What's this story all about? It's the big application that comes right down to us, this side of the cross. My friends, God's beloved son, shepherd, ruler, who was rejected not only by his own people, but by the whole world, who descended into the pit of shame and death. And I'm not talking about Joseph, if you haven't figured that out. He's been lifted up. He's ascended to his throne. And God is now unfolding his reign. No matter how things look, his rule will come and every knee will bow. And at one level, it's a powerful warning, isn't it? To a world that thinks they are done with Jesus. A world that thinks he was just a man with good intentions and over-exuberance. 
that God himself crushed by the cruel wheels of history and the cross was his end. To people who think they can just reject him out of their lives by force of will, chuck him into the pit, so to speak. If that's you, like Joseph's brothers, you are missing what's really going on. You're blinded by your own sinfulness and your desperation for autonomy. God has sent his shepherd, ruler, Jesus, for you. He's come for your good. And his story didn't end at the cross. He reigns now for your salvation. If you're not sure of this, just keep reading Joseph's story if you want to see what I mean. He is a good ruler. Stop rejecting him. Stop rejecting him to cling to your own self-rule, which is useless in all your brokenness, and you know it. Receive his good, loving rule in your life. And of course, for us as believers this morning, what an encouragement and exhortation. The story's not over. As that friend or family member continues in their rejection of Jesus, perhaps even with almost a shocking hatefulness and vitriol like Joseph's brothers. I know some of you have experienced this and are in it now, and I know I have. Remember the rest of the story. Follow the journey of Joseph's brothers. It's not over. God is still working. And as our world, our country, our city seems in complete rejection of our God and his shepherd ruler Jesus, and things seem to just be going in a serious decline, the story is not over. And by the way, we know the end. And it's sure. We need not despair. We not, need not be sidetracked by other potential rulers and their promises of salvation that seem so tangible. All the politics and all the promises of the world. Let's not get sidetracked. There's no reason to be. The fullness of Jesus' reign is coming and all will bow. That's the end of the story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful living word that not only brings us into the lives of your followers, that we may see these truths in a colorful, clear way, but then acts upon us to bring us life. May we sit under it and walk out from here believing it. In your name, amen.